from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, hey there, everyone. Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? Yeah, hope everybody's good. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for listening. Absolutely. Very excited about this story. I didn't know any of this stuff about Frederick Douglass. <laughs> oh, no. This is totally eye-opening to me. Yeah, I love Mind it. Mind-opening. All of the... Everything is opened up now. Everything? Well, all right. <laughs> Look, it's a Frederick Douglass story. Let's take our minds out of the gutter, please. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got stories for that. <laughs> Not Don't worry. This one. <laughs> Not this one. Um fair enough. No, but uh so excited to have you back. Hope everybody had a great weekend. We had a nice time. You know our friends Cherry and Jason, of course. True. Recently on the show. We got to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Really nice time. Uh we got to go see some of my old friends from like high school days and onwards. Mm-hmm. And uh and then we got to see the Batman, which is so good. You guys, it's so good. Really Why is it so good? It. I was expecting to, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. Well, I think I was really like, don't get excited. Don't yeah. get scared. Right. Just go to the Batman. Right. <laughs> Look, it's our 67th Batman this year. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't True. know. I liked it. Uh, but then we saw 
The Lost City. Super yeah, fun. Yeah, it was so fun. Look, they just don't Adorable. make movies like that anymore, and they need to. It was so much fun. Yeah. It was just a good time. Yeah. I was like, yay, a good time. I'm just having fun watching this. For real. And Daniel Radcliffe was having a blast Daniel making Radcliffe. it. <laughs> so much fun. Channing Tatum's hilarious. Sandy B is phenomenal, as always, always as, as she always. has been queen. from day one. Sandy B. Sandy oh. B. Just on the ridiculous romance front, I did love that. Ser- what was it? A couple different talk shows where Keanu Reeves confessed oh, yeah. that he had a big crush on her when yeah. they were making Speed, and she confessed that she had a big crush on him oh. when they were making Speed, and they never said anything. Can you and we could have had a Sandy B. Keanu Reeves thing. <laughs> Instead of what, whoever she ended up marrying. She, well, actually, we probably should do Sandy B on this show because she married that uh, former guy. white supremacist That's or whatever. Right. And she never knew about it. Right? Something like or that. She says she did. You know what? <laughs> there should be a podcast about it somewhere. Someone should really dig into that story. <laughs> it's like this kind of like relationship that's just um, it's just ridiculous. And somebody oh, ought to do like a, a podcast about it. <laughs> hmm. If y'all think of anyone who should yeah. do that show. <laughs> Let us know. Maybe uh, tell them. but you're not here for celebs you're not here for movie reviews much as we could go into it but no today we are not talking about sandy b we're not talking about any one of them we're talking about frederick douglas baby the one and only you you might know frederick douglas as a famous escaped slave right and an abolitionist sure and an amazing orator and a statesman and an author and all these amazing achievements uh-huh but did you know that ladies loved him oh freddie friends he was the ll cool j of his time oh no shit ll freddie d <laughs> ladies love the d <laughs> the frederick d <laughs> ladies love freddie d <laughs> But seriously, this is so interesting to read more about him and, and and look into his relationships because a lot more of his legacy should be credited to the women around him. Yeah. More than I ever knew and I think more than many people ever knew. Yeah. So I'm very excited to share this story with all of you. And let's hear more about his wife, Anna Murray, and all the other women who helped Frederick Douglass become the man that he was and preserve his legacy for future generations. Yeah, let's go. Yes. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tip. It's just about ridiculous relationships A lover might be any type of person at all An abstract concept or a concrete wall But if there's a story worth a second glance We'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance A production of iHeartRadio Frederick Douglass was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey in Maryland In February 1817 or 1818 The records are not great Yeah, they were great at records back then well, not of... Uh, uh, yeah, not especially of, of enslaved people. Of enslaved people. Yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah. who needs to write this down? Right, right. And yes, he was enslaved. His mother was enslaved, so he was as well. And it's widely accepted that his father was white. He wrote himself that his, it was whispered around that his master was his father, mm. but he never got confirmation of that, so it's not known. But an all-too-common story. His exact birth date is unknown, but Frederick chose to celebrate his birthday on February 14th because his mother would call him her little Valentine. Cute. Which is very cute. And even though he was separated from his mother during infancy, what Frederick called, quote, a common custom in Maryland. Oh. 
She lived 12 miles away, so she was able to visit him a few times before her death when Frederick was only seven. So in his childhood, Frederick was sent to serve Hugh Ald and his wife Sophia in Baltimore, Maryland. When he was about 12, Sophia Ald started to teach him the alphabet. Sophia had always been kind to Frederick. I mean, you know, as kind as, you know, an enslaver can be to their enslaved person, I suppose. Yeah. Um, But, you know, on that relative scale, she was relatively kind. She made sure that he got enough food and warm, clean clothes. And Frederick wrote about her that she treated him, quote, as she supposed one human being ought to treat another. (laughs) Just a little backhanded way to be like, what an idea. Wow, what a concept. (laughs) Uh What if we treated people as if we felt like we were supposed to treat them? But Sophia's husband, Hugh, told her, stop teaching Frederick how to read and write. He thought literacy was going to encourage enslaved people to desire freedom. Yeah. Which, duh, what a concept. Quit teaching him his letters. Uh huh. Any day now, he'll decide he's worth something. Right. So after Hugh said, you know, if enslaved people learn to read and write, then they'll want their freedom. Frederick wrote, quote, very well, thought I. Knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. I instinctively assented to the proposition. And from that moment, I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. So he's like, thanks for the idea, boss. You're right. (laughs) If I learn more, Hmm. I can get the hell out of this hellhole. Is that what it takes? Well, let me do that. (laughs) So I will. Well, unfortunately, Sophia also assented to this proposition. Mm. Under her husband's influence, she came to agree that slaves should not know how to read and write. So she decided to stop teaching Frederick to read, and she would, like, snatch newspapers out of his hands. She even hid her Bible from him so he couldn't read it. Which is just so funny. Again, just hiding the knowledge of the Lord seems like kind of right. counterintuitive right. <laughs> to yeah. what you're trying to do. But whatever. That's all right. I also want to jump in and say one thing that I do kind of love about this is that this man who was an enslaver is the very guy who gave Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. the impulse to go out And make something of himself. So congratulations, you played yourself. I know, right? (laughs) He was like, "Uh uh-oh, if you learn how to read, you won't be a slave anymore. He's like, bet. I I will learn how to read. (laughs) I would love to go back in in a time machine and find that guy and be like, hey, guess what you did? (laughs) You contributed to one of the prominent figures who ended slavery, asshole. Well, isn't that the main thing? Like, isn't that the thing you create? Yeah. uh, When you oppress people, you always create your own destructors or whatever that. There's a whole phrase for it. I'm saying it wrong. But anyway. Exactly. That's what he did. So, yeah, she was like, "Uh uh-oh, my bad. Let me stop teaching this guy how to read. But it was too late. Frederick had learned enough from Sophia that he was able to continue in secret and teach himself. There you go. And he observed, like, white children. He kind of, like, watched what they read or he would look over their shoulder, listen to them, like, sounding things out and stuff, and just continued to teach himself in secret how to read and write. And he at some point learned that his mother had also been literate and had taught herself how to read and write. Nice. And he was like, he would point to that fact a lot with a lot of pride because he was just like, she snatched that knowledge Mm -hmm. away from them, basically, because they didn't want to give it to her. And made, you know, she made that happen for herself. And he he was really proud of that. This is incredible to me. And the idea of just, like, staring at words until you learn how to read like that takes a real level of intelligence 
And you dedication. Know, to teach yourself something without someone coming in and telling you, you know, well, let's Makes start here. This it. is how it is. Totally. Well, and then, I mean, I when I was in China, one of our tour guides talked about learning English by listening to the radio oh, in wow. English and just listened until she could understand what they were saying. Right. And I was just like, insane. Just oh especially, God. I mean, at least written, you've got the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But the radio, you just listen to people talk and you have to make sense of so much. And without... Someone saying, "Okay, well, le let me give you five code words. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll translate these five words into your native language, and you can at least use that as context totally. to figure out the rest." But to go from nothing, like the the Batman himself could not decipher <laughs> English from the, the radio. Batman himself, he didn't know it. <laughs> Frederick Douglass, you heard it here first. Frederick Douglass, better than the Batman. <laughs> so yeah, Frederick Douglass learned how to read, learned how to write. He was hired out to the Freeland family, and he started holding Sunday school sessions there, and he would teach other slaves how to read and write as well. Oh, wow. And something like 40 people would come to this Sunday school. And I guess the Freeland family was sort of, like, cool with this. They were pretty complacent. They sound mm -hmm. kind of like uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch character oh, from 12 geez. Years a Slave, where he's sort of like quote-unquote, one of the good ones. Yeah, I'm a cool slave master. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ugh. I'll still buy you and consider you property, but I right. won't treat you like shit while I do it. Um, so anyway, I think it was kind of their vibe, but because uh, slaves from other plantations were coming to this Sunday school to learn how to read and write, those owners, those masters and enslavers were very angry about this whole right. scenario. Right. And at one point, they busted in to the Bible study with clubs and stones to oh. break it up permanently. God. And that was the end of that. So as a result of all this, Frederick's own enslaver, Thomas Auld, sent him to work for Edward Covey, who was this poor farmer who was known as a slave breaker. Now, Frederick is only 16 at this point, and he was whipped and beaten so frequently that his wounds didn't even have time to heal. He wrote that the beatings broke his mind, body, and spirit. But one day, he turned on Edward and fought back. And after that, he was never beaten again. So when he was around 20 years old, Frederick was working as a caulker down at the docks in Baltimore. And one day, he met a woman there named Anna Murray. Anna had seven older brothers and sisters who'd been born into slavery. But only a month before Anna was born, her mother and father were manumitted. And manumission is when a slave owner voluntarily frees their slaves, whereas emancipation is when the government makes you do it. So Anna and her four younger siblings were born free. Man, a month. You know, that was oh, that's some luck right there. Yeah, she was like, real. Whoo. And it doesn't say if her older siblings had been manumitted as well. Mm. We just kind of hope so. Do you think these, these manumission slaveholders just like woke up and looked in the mirror one day and were like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, well, that's the thing is that it's so interesting to read more about um, the lead up to the Civil War. Yeah. And that's part of this story, because it just kind of proves how like slavery was not super popular. Right. It, it after we declared our independence and said there should be equality. A lot of people read that and were like, I take that for real seriously. Uh -huh. And this does not it doesn't make sense together. Yeah. I can't look at this slavery institution and also feel proud of my freaking free country yeah. that everybody's free in. Because everybody in the late 1700s stood up and said, that's right. 
We will no longer be slaves to King George. Oh. Oh. oh, oh, wait a second. What did uh, I say? Did you say slaves? Yeah, that's not so good. Are we doing that? Wait a minute. Are we Ew. doing that? But they all, you know, a lot of them, too. Like, Tom, I mean, Thomas Jefferson manumitted some of his slaves. Right. Um, George Washington manumitted all of his. But in his will, in after his he will. was dead. Right. You know what I mean? So they're all like, just <laughs> later. Like, I don't want to do it, but like, yeah. y'all should do it. <laughs> yeah. Way to go, <laughs> Which guys. Which I think we talked about a little in Governor Morris. Right. <laughs> just right. kicking the can down the road a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I also just want to just want to throw a shout out to Anna's mom who popped out 12 babies. Oh, my God. <laughs> Most of them while she was enslaved herself. Right. <laughs> Good for you. Right. I'm, also, I'm just know. saying. Uh, well, yeah, we're over here like, Big ooh, a uh, baby? That would really cramp my style. <laughs> She's rocking 12 in and out of enslavement. My God. Um. Anyway, so Anna was born free. And she was a very resourceful woman, obviously with a big family. Um, so by the time she was 17, she's taken in laundry. She's working as a housekeeper, paying bills, you yeah. know, getting shit done. And... Some sources say that this work took her to the docks, and that's how she met Frederick, who was, you know, caulking, okay. caulking <laughs> yeah. something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but another source, South Coast Today, says that they met in a group called East Baltimore Mental Improvement Society, and that was a group that was, you know, formed for free black men and women. Okay. But Frederick Douglass, who was still enslaved at this time was allowed in because he knew how to read and write, and he was also just a very eloquent speaker, and that was a plus because one of the main activities of the group was giving lectures and, you know, speeches about, right. I guess, mental improvement. But I think that we should, just because no one really knows, it's not uh, recorded anywhere, but I thought we could maybe pull into Speculation Station uh-huh. and tell people how they met. Oh, how the think? two of the, how Frederick and Anna met? I just picture like a real smooth talking Frederick Douglass. Sure. Like I feel like he had a line. He had, had he was pretty handsome. So I feel like he, yeah. you know, he was probably like, hey girl, what's in that basket? <laughs> I don't I don't have any game. <laughs> I get, well, no, yeah. She she walks up and she's, he's, you know, he's working on a ship or something. She's like, impressive cock. What? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, excuse me? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, so Anna had game. She yeah, it was Anna. Up. Anna came in. I like that. I talking. like that. I mean, he left the door wide open, working <laughs> as a caulker. I think he would have. What would you say though, if you saw a pretty laundress walking down the street with her laundry basket, and you were like, mm, "I got to talk to her." <laughs> what would I say? I don't know. Yeah. What would I say? First of all, <laughs> I don't. Guy. I don't have <laughs> game either. I've never The only way I've ever dated women is by already being friends with them for many years. Okay, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I would do. I would invite her to join my theater company. (laughs) And a few years down the line, I'd wait for her to make a move on me. Wow. That's, hey, it's worked every time. I think ultimately the real challenge here is me trying to imagine anything about what Frederick Douglass would feel like (laughs) in any given situation. Yeah, I guess that would be tough. (laughs) So I think I'm just going to leave that one in speculation station. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, I liked the calk jokes we came up with anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so Anna herself was about five years older than Frederick, and her freedom made Frederick believe that he could be free too. He had tried once before to escape slavery about four or five years earlier when he was working for the Freelands, but that had been unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. But after meeting Anna for the first time since then, he started plotting his escape. But this time... He had an ace up his sleeve, Anna herself. 
She sold one of her feather beds and gave him part of her life savings to fund his escape out of Maryland. Mm. When she took in laundry, she would set aside pieces of sailor's clothing to give him to wear as disguise. Frederick got his identification papers from a free black sailor that he could travel under. And then finally, in 1838, everything was ready. Frederick escaped and made his way to the home of abolitionist David Ruggles in New York City. And for this short journey, he was enjoying his freedom only 24 hours after leaving Maryland. He wrote of his first free day, quote, A new world had opened upon me. I lived more in one day than in a year of my slave life. I'm thinking about Ellen and William Craft, of course. Oh, yes, that episode. That is such a good episode, I must say. If you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it because their escape is incredible. Just edgier seat shit the whole time. Yeah. But they had to go a thousand miles to freedom. Yeah. That was the name of their book. Right. So this was just blowing my mind that like they had to go a thousand miles. And once they got there, it must have felt like, well, I fucking really escaped from something. I had to really go far away to get away from that. Yeah. Whereas he almost was like next door, you know, right. what I mean? he's like looking at a free place and yeah. he's like, J- I just can't get there. I yeah. need money to get there and I don't get money. That's sort of my whole fucking problem. <laughs> right, <laughs> I right. get money for my, my labor. So I have no freedom to move about. I just think it must be so weird to, to just be like, man, yesterday I was not yeah. safe and now I am. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a totally different mindset. Just yeah. showing two different versions of this is I just. Yeah. And then just again, just to be so close and not yeah. be free yourself must be so maddening. Right. And just. Right. So, yeah, he's in New York. He's breathing free air. He feels great. And he sends for Anna to join him. And they were married 11 days after he escaped slavery on September 15th, 1838. And they took the name Johnson. And then they moved to New Bedford, Massachusetts to start their married life together. So their daughter, Rosetta Douglas Sprague, wrote a paper called Anna Murray Douglas, My Mother as I Recall Her. And it's basically one of the only pieces of writing that tells us anything about Anna and her contributions to Frederick's life. Mm. And Rosetta wrote of their newlywed life together, quote, The little that they possessed was the outcome of the industrial and economic habits that were characteristic of my mother. She had brought with her sufficient goods and chattel to fit up comfortably two rooms in her new Bedford home, a feather bed with pillows, bed linen, dishes, knives, forks and spoons, besides a well-filled trunk of wearing apparel for herself. The early days in New Bedford were spent in daily toil, the wife at the washboard, the husband with saw, buck, and axe. So you see, they're just a really close team. Uh-huh. Um, she thought of everything. <laughs> I mean, like right. she's just very good at making a home. Yeah. Uh, out of wherever she is, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both had to work incredibly hard. Yeah. To keep it together those early days. And only a couple years later, they moved to Lynn, Massachusetts, and they stayed with a couple named Nathan and Mary Johnson. So they get in there like, "You're Johnson. We're Johnson. Johnson. I thought we were the Johnsons." Uh, excuse me, John- Mr. Johnson. Yes, yes. <laughs> 50 guys. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided that Johnson was just too common of a name. So Frederick asked Nathan what they should change theirs to. And Nathan had recently read the poem Lady of the Lake, and he suggested Douglas after one of the main characters. Mm-hmm. So they took the name Frederick and Anna Douglas. Mm-hmm. 
Frederick wanted to join a white Methodist church, but this church was segregated. So he instead joined a black congregation that included Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman as members. I feel like if I was in that white Methodist church, I'd be like, let me, um, can I also join? Can I I go over to that church? Can I join that church? (laughs) So Frederick became a preacher the next year, which helped him hone his public speaking skills. And he continued to join and organize with abolitionist groups. That is when he met the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who ran the most radical, prominent anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator. Each man was totally impressed with the other. Frederick said Garrison's paper was second only to the Bible in his heart. Mm. And they soon became close collaborators in the fight to end slavery. And at some of the meetings that Frederick attended, he would be invited to speak. And like every time he talked, people were like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. (laughs) Um, He really impressed the crowd. He had so eloquent. His delivery was amazing. He had had great presence. Mm -hmm. But also his personal story was just incredibly stirring. He could talk about life in slavery, life escaping slavery, living basically illegally (laughs) as a free man. Right. And they also thought that his eloquence and education made him kind of a great living example of how dumb it was to think that black people are inherently inferior to white people. Right. You know, they were just like, if you withhold education, obviously people are going to be uneducated, but not because they're just unable to learn. Look at this guy. He taught himself. (laughs) What did you teach yourself, William Lloyd Garrison? But yeah, so they were basically like, ooh, this is a really good, you know, again, example, capital E, of a good black man, I guess, that we can use as a good mascot. White people, (laughs) I always need to hear that shit. Right. And we, you know, respectability politics aside, that was really important at the time. So Frederick was encouraged to become an anti-slavery lecturer. And so he took his first six-month lecture tour in 1843 throughout the eastern and midwestern states, talking about slavery. In Indiana, he was badly beaten by slavery supporters after one of his speeches, and his hand was broken in the attack. He actually had to be rescued by a Quaker couple. And it healed improperly and bothered him for the rest of his life. And in 1845, he published the first edition of his autobiography. Now, Anna was part of abolition organization efforts, too. She was active in a group called the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, or BFAS. BFAS. <laughs> I'm adding that, that acronym myself. <laughs> Shake BFAS. Watch yourself. BFAS. The Boston female ass. No. (laughs) No. Nope. No. Rescinding that. By the time Frederick was publishing his autobiography, they already had four children together. There was Rosetta, who was born in 1839, Louis Henry in 1840, Frederick Jr. in 1842, and Charles Remond in 1844. Mm. But Anna did even more than that. Frederick's work lecturing and writing about slavery didn't pay that well. Mm -hmm. So Anna supported the family financially. She took in laundry. She learned how to make shoes. The family leaned on her even more after Frederick's life story was published. People thought his growing fame as a speaker would attract the attention of Thomas and Hugh Auld, Frederick's enslavers. Yeah. Who legally, legally, in quotes, like still technically had ownership of him like he had escaped so they could go to the courts and say this guy belongs to me and take him back absolutely outrageous 
So he had to get the hell out of there to avoid being tracked down and sent back into slavery. So he hopped a boat and took off for Ireland and Great Britain. Again, like the Crafts, who also had to escape to England yeah. for a while um, yeah. because they they were being searched for. Right. And they had to be housed and people had to hide them away yeah. from fugitive, slave fugitive catchers or whatever they were called. Yeah. You had to put an ocean between you and those guys right. to get away. And Canada fun, wasn't mean, enough. You again, know? it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we're writing the Constitution and saying what a great country uh-huh. this is. And it. I think William Kraft wrote about it where he was like, it was very strange to have to leave my great country in order to experience freedom and right and safety of movement and protection in, under the law. Protection and safety in the very country that you that the United States escaped from. Exactly. Citing exactly. all of their oppressive laws. Yeah. So uh, it's a disconnect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. So he's in Ireland and Great Britain, and his lectures there would be packed to bursting with interested listeners. And, you know, things weren't great in Ireland at the time. A fungus had just killed off half the potato crop for that year, mm-hmm. which is big in Ireland. But even amongst all that, Frederick was astounded at what it was like to live in a place without racial discrimination. He wrote, quote, I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity or claim me as his slave or offer me an insult. I employ a cab. I am seated by white people. I reach the hotel. I enter the same door. I am shown the same parlor. I dine at the same table and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. It must have been so hard for them to do that. You know what I mean? Oh, geez. To like put aside all that. No, it wasn't hard. It wasn't it hard. That's wasn't the thing, hard. like, right? Like, it's incredible to me that, I mean, I know there's a, a whole lot of racism going on in England. And we've spoken before about for how many years before the Declaration of Independence was signed, England was definitely oh. profiting off slavery sure. in the U.S. But they got rid of it before mm-hmm. we did. And according to people like the Crafts and Frederick Douglass, it was a whole it was a paradise (laughs) comparatively, you know, uh, in terms of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's frustrating just looking back through history, but then thinking about being in that time Mm -hmm. and having two such obvious stark contrasts to look at look at and say, but but it's fine. Yeah, this is the modern world in both places. How come one of you is so backwards? It's really interesting because, as you say, there's certainly racism in other countries. Yeah. Bad, terrible, bad racism. Yeah. But um, I also know that it, there is a very specific racism directed towards African-Americans particularly. Yeah. And there was this guy who he was from Africa and he came to America and he was talking on one podcast and I wish I could remember what it was. It was like a food. He's like a chef guy. Uh-huh. I think it was Point of Origin. Um, but he was talking about coming to America and working as a chef or as a cook and in the kitchens and stuff. And he was like, and people would be so horrible to me. And then they would hear my accent. And it was like I was a better black person because oh, I wow. wasn't from America. I was really from Africa. Wow. And I was like, that's so interesting to see that change happen right in front of you that yeah. they think you're American. And then suddenly you're, oh, you're, oh, you're not. You're not a black American. So you're different, like better in some way or you deserve more respect or something. 
I don't know. No, I was it, just like, well, that's so weird. It's because we're trying to ascribe logic right, to a know. racist's brain, you know, and there's <laughs> no logic in racism. Very you true. know, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way you can put it mm-hmm. where you go, oh, well, OK, well, All that right. logically, that makes it. There is none of that. You know what there is, though? Hmm. Commercial. Oh, crap. Sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. We've been going on. It is time for a commercial break, and we will be right back with more after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And welcome back to the show. So Frederick Douglass spent two years overseas. Lucky. Right? Look, I'm rarely going to say Frederick Douglass was lucky. (laughs) I'll just say it this once. This one time. Yeah. But it just sucks that he had to be there for that long. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Seriously. Like he had to be away from Anna. Right. This and wasn't his, a vacation. His children. Yeah. yeah. He it's... couldn't go home. Right. So he spent two years away from everyone. He was lecturing and befriending British abolitionists. And while he was there, his supporters, led by two women, Anna Richardson and her sister in law, Ellen of Newcastle upon Tyne, which I just love. Such a good name. I love those British names. Newcastle upon Tyne. 
Um, they raised the money to purchase his freedom from the Alts. What? So that he would be able to go back to America legally. Amazing. And of course, everyone wanted him to stay in England because they were like, you're amazing, Frederick Douglass. I, right. I guess they were like, you're amazing, Frederick Douglass. There it is. Oh, yeah. You know. So yeah, everyone wants him to stay in England, but Frederick has his family back home. Right. And he's like, I want to go home. And plus, not to mention... It was three, nearly four million black people living in slavery still. Mm. And he felt like, I have work to do at home. So he chose to go back in 1847. And he and Anna were really attracted by the very active abolitionist and women's rights movements that were going on in Rochester, New York. Shout hey, out to Rochester. My so, so they moved their family from Massachusetts to Rochester. And Frederick had 500 pounds from his British supporters, which if I can pull out the calculator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. 500 pounds. That's nearly $47,000 today. Wow. Wait. Um, so he got a he took a two year trip to the UK and came back with $47,000 more than he left with. Yeah. That is the opposite of what would happen to us. me. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely left our money there. <laughs> But I think that's cool. They they raised not only enough money to purchase himself, which is right. such a weird fucking thing to say, but right. whatever. Enough money for that and also this extra money. Yeah. Um, that's pretty rad. Yeah. So it just goes to show how popular he was over there. And he used this money to start his own abolitionist newspaper, North Star, in the basement of the Memorial AME Zion Church. Oh. And he and Anna also used their house as a stop on the Underground Railroad. And they provided safe board, clean clothes, and food to fugitives on their way to Canada. Anna, of course, main coordinator of that work because it's all about domestic stuff. Sure. But their kids also pitched in. Their son Charles wrote later on in his life, quote, we have often had to get up at midnight to admit a sleigh load and start fires to thaw the fugitives out. Every member of the family had to lend a hand to this work, and it was always cheerfully performed. Wow. Now, the North Star got glowing reviews, but they did struggle financially. Not everyone in Rochester was happy to have yet another anti-slavery newspaper published in their town, particularly when it was edited by a former slave. Mm -hmm. The New York Herald even encouraged its readers to dump Frederick's printing press into Lake Ontario. Jeez. Frederick returned to the lecturing circuit to pay for the cost of producing the newspaper and even ended up putting a mortgage on his house. But subscriptions grew slowly. But then a British friend, a white woman named Julia Griffiths, came in and helped him out. And that brings us to this episode's first side piece. May I help? Julia Griffiths was a British abolitionist. She met Frederick Douglass while he was in Ireland and Great Britain, and she'd been one of the many women who helped fundraise to send Frederick home with enough money to start North Star. So when she heard it was struggling, she's like, oh, no, we can't have that. And she moved to Rochester, New York. Wow. <laughs> like, just moved her whole life there to become the editor and publisher of the paper and to handle the finances and get the money in order. And eventually... Thanks to her, he was able to regain the mortgage on his home, and the paper was on even financial footing within a few years. So thanks to Julia. Um, and Frederick also asked her to come live at his house in Rochester and tutor Anna and their children. Mm. But with Anna, she did fail. Uh, Rosetta Douglas Sprague wrote about her mother, quote, Unfortunately, an opportunity for knowledge of books was denied her, the lack of which she greatly deplored. 
Her increasing family and household duties prevented any great advancement, although she was able to read a little. Mm-hmm. So she was a little too busy to be learning everything else because she was making it all work. Yeah, she was, she was making their homework. Exactly. And also uh, um, another historian, Rose O'Keefe, pointed out that she was keeping their work you know, as being part of the Underground Railroad, a secret also. Like oh, right. She was, you know, that's a secret. You right. can't tell people about that. So yeah. she was handling a lot of very sensitive yeah. work and sensitive information and just balancing a lot in the background. Makes sense. And Anna's illiteracy and her sort of lack of polish kind of led to a bit of a distance between her and her husband. Frederick was on the road a lot. He's this famous abolitionist lecturer. He's hobnobbing it with all the notable names of the day. Mm -hmm. While Anna's back home doing domestic work. Rosetta even wrote that because of his frequent absences, quote, father was mother's honored guest. So it was like, you know, kind oh, of the vibe in the house. Yeah. Like when he came home, it's like, oh, uh, oh, you're here. Let mm. me set up a bed for you or whatever. You right. Know? She said it was like a flutter of activity every time he, his comings and goings were yeah. really important yeah. events because he was such a I mean, he was coming and going a lot. Yeah. So. Many of Frederick's white contemporaries in particular kind of looked down on Anna. They saw no value in her contributions to the household. Tale as old as time. Okay. Women not getting enough credit for Ooh. the very important work they're doing at home. And they didn't really see much more of her contributions to the Underground Railroad either. Maybe, like you said, because it's a secret. Right. It's not like you're not supposed to go out there and flaunt all the work you're doing for the <laughs> Underground Railroad. Um, but their thinking was that she should be involved in the abolition movement in the same way Frederick was. Like, that would be more valuable. They were like, he should be married to a woman as smart and well-spoken as he is or something. Yeah. It's like... No, she was smart in different ways. They had different things. Right. Different skill sets. They also got real racist about it. Oh, they would sure. comment negatively about Anna's dark skin or her facial features, her nose, her lips. They, mm-hmm. they always mentioned that she was, quote, very black, yeah. which is just a coded way of saying that she wasn't pretty. Like that was their way of mm-hmm. pointing out, oh, well, she's not pretty like I think pretty is. Yeah. Just some more racist bullshit. And unfortunately, historians pretty much took this view as well. And they kind of wrote off Anna until very recently, because now in history, we're like coming to real terms with the idea that having a home support like Anna is what gave people like Frederick the freedom of time and movement to do all the world changing that they did. I mean, yeah, we've talked about this before with even some of the women who managed to do amazing things. Yeah. And you have to notice that uh, it's partly because they were pretty rich and they were yeah. comfortable and they yeah. had time to sit and think about the human condition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, like when you're busy working and trying to feed yourself, uh-huh. you just don't have that kind of freedom. And I think people are realizing it more now because so many more people do both. Right. And have to do both. Yes. And so they're like, oh, shit. What happened to all the innovations? What happened to all the... <laughs> no one has time. Yeah. Because they, they're doing the work that Anna was doing, too. Right. This historian, Lee Fout, uh, who wrote The Women in the World of Frederick Douglass, told USA Today, quote, This is real woman behind the man stuff. I think it's important for people to remember how much he respected her and relied on her. Women's history has forced people to look at the role that women played in making great men great. Now, Julia also became Frederick's office and business manager. 
and his almost constant companion. She arranged his lectures. She would accompany him to meetings. She was still managing the paper's finances. And people in Rochester apparently just were pearl clutching for a little while and just had to get used to seeing this black leader and his white assistant walking arm in arm down the street. (gasps) She was also a founding member of the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. Ah, the Rochester Ladies ass. (laughs) I gotta stop. (laughs) You gotta stop about the the ladies' asses. The R-lass. The R-lass. The Rochester lass. Aw, the Rochester lass. That's better than the Rochester Ladies ass. Yeah, I think it's more respectful. Okay. She published an anthology of anti-slavery literature called Autographs for Freedom that was so popular it had to have a second edition. And she used the money that she raised with our lass <laughs> to support North Star, the newspaper, as well as establishing a school for freedmen in Kansas, distributing anti-slavery literature in Kentucky, mm. and providing small cash gifts to fugitives along the Underground Railroad to finance their oh, journeys wow. to freedom because it takes money yeah. to take a journey, as yeah. you know. And at least 136 enslaved people were helped by the society directly in this way. Okay, Julia. Um, so that's pretty dope. Yeah. And I, I was enjoying learning about these little Rochester and Boston, these these chapters of uh-huh. these anti-slavery societies, because you have to remember that, like, it took a lot of little community organizing yeah. to create a, a nationwide change. Yeah. And it seems just because we're so much taught from one war to the next, you never really get the lead up. You don't yeah. hear about all the really boring <laughs> grassroots, yeah. annoying, tiny, small, you know, one step forward, two steps back work that was happening for decades before the thing actually came to fruition. Yeah. So these ladies were doing that hard stuff. You often feel like it takes some giant Mm-hmm. To to help, you know, many millions of people at a time yeah. to make a big difference in the world. And it is often not that. It's often this organization helped 136 people. That's that one helped great. 75. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, this one helped 300. Like, you know, that's I think that's how it's got to be. Yeah. Also, if I can get us to pass the Bechdel test here real quick, do you think Julia was working with Anna because Anna did so much for Underground Railroad? I imagine they must have been having some... Some collaborative conversations as well, right? That is a great question. I would love to speculate about that. I think I would love to just say that Julia was not a piece of shit to Anna. (laughs) I would like to assume that. Um, So hopefully that'd be cool if she's like, hey, you know, like what would really help the Underground Railroad? And she's like, well, honestly, they need money to get to Canada. Right. We're Rochester. We're pretty close, but not that close. They still need money. Julia's like, oh, if it's something I know how to do, it's raise a pound or two. (laughs) Yes. So by this time, Frederick was also advocating for the right for women to vote. Yes! He was the only black person to attend the first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls in 1848. And he had also had a falling out with his abolitionist friend, William Lloyd Garrison, in 1847. See, Garrison felt that the Constitution itself was inherently pro-slavery because of the Three-Fifths Clause. Mm -hmm. And he would actually go out and publicly burn copies of the Constitution to make his point. I love it. It's like this 
he's like an older white guy. So I just love imagining him as like this punk performance artist. Right. Like, <laughs> what is this document? This is garbage. Set it on fire. Right. <laughs> so like radical. I love it. <laughs> and at first, Frederick totally agreed with him. But later, Frederick heard more persuasive arguments from Lysander Spooner examining the Constitution as an anti-slavery document. And this kind of changed Frederick's position. And this caused one of the abolition movement's most notable divisions because these two famous men kind of went head to head arguing their points in their respective newspapers. Yeah. And yeah, it was just, I think for Frederick Douglass, you know, on one side, you got a guy being like, fuck this whole document that this country is based on. Yeah. And on the other side, you got a guy going, actually, we could read this as this document protects freedoms of all men. It says so right here. Equality Uh everywhere. Um, So why not use it? And I think Frederick was like, which one's going to work? Yeah. And it seems a lot harder to be like, let's completely rewrite the entire Constitution that we just wrote. Right. Or actually, we can just amend this one. Yeah. Existing one. So I think it was just more about what's going to win. That's the main thing. Yeah, sure, sure. But shortly after they're falling out, Garrison, with no real evidence, by the way, accused Frederick and Julia of having an affair. Oh. And so this rumor was going around for several years that they were actually sleeping together and not just working together. Um, And so Anna had to hear all these whisperings about that shit while she was pregnant with her and Frederick's fifth child, Annie, who was born at the end of 1849. There's no evidence to support this claim. No. And it does feel like classic bullshit behavior from someone who's petty and also super sexist. Yeah. To be like, oh, well, there's a woman working with you. Well, people will believe it if I say that you're sleeping with her then. Very true. You know. And uh, they, you know, he was accused a number of times of having affairs. Mm. Um and partly, you know, to discredit his work as an abolitionist. Right. And it worked, I guess, because it played into the stereotype of African-American men being like this oversexed, uh, yeah. impossible, can't be faithful, just totally out of control yeah. uh, type of people. Even back then, this that stereotype was present. Very much so, yeah. yes. So, yeah, they... That's frustrating to me that Garrison did it um, because he supposedly cares about ending slavery, but right. inst- but he wants to tear down one of the major names yep. in the movement. It says yep. to me, he doesn't care so much about the end goal. He just cared about being right. Right. He's like, I want my argument to win, so yep. I don't really care what happens to Damn. you. Like, that's maddening to me. I don't know. Obviously, I didn't look at William Lloyd Garrison's life story for this, but right. I was mad at him in this moment yeah. <laughs> of for real. the story. For real. So in 1852... Julia moved out of the Douglas house and she was hoping that this would kind of lay this rumor to rest that they were having an affair. She's like, I'm going to just kind of distance myself a little bit physically from you. Um, But they still worked together. She was still a colleague of his and a confidant um, as he continued his very important work. In 1852, on July 5th, he gave his famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? which one biographer called, quote, perhaps the greatest anti-slavery oration ever given. So what do you say we go over to the podium and hear some of it? Uh, Yeah, I feel fine reading Frederick Douglass's words. You know, <laughs> well, we have to do that a lot on this show, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think this is a really cool speech and it's important to hear it. 
It is so cool. I'm not, well, and we just had a recent, you know, kind of national conversation about Juneteenth and why, yeah. you know, there might be a different uh, celebration of the freedom of this country for yeah. the black community because they have a different <laughs> day of freedom than we do. Right. Uh, right. Than white people do. So, yeah. So not playing Frederick Douglass, but uh, <laughs> rather sharing with you his words. Yes. We'll read some of this speech. He says, quote, I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Damn. I, I mean, it lays it all out for you. I mean... He really... It's a... And it's a long speech, and he basically lays out the entire history of the country so far yeah, yeah. <laughs> in it. And it's very interesting to see his, his perspective on it. And uh, that I love that he was so fiery. You yeah. know, he did not pull punches. He, he said exactly what he meant. Right. And right. what was tr- true. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't try to, you know, sugarcoat it for anybody. It's fascinating to me. But there were rumors about Julia that were still swirling. Julia and Frederick's torrid affair, allegedly. Thanks a lot, Garrison. Yeah, they probably just kept bringing it up. You know, yeah, every exactly. time he did something cool, they'd be like, well, but he is fucking his secretary uh-huh. or whatever, you know. So Julia sees all this and she recognizes that this is detrimental to the anti-slavery work that needed to be done. So in 1855, she decided the best thing to do was to go back to England. And while there, she did continue to write columns for Frederick Douglass's paper, and she continued to raise funds for the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, and she continued to organize other anti-slavery societies as well. 1859, she married a minister. Big ups to Julia. You know, yeah. she kept it moving. I, I love, too, that hearing how many people were working toward the cause of ending slavery in America that uh-huh. weren't even in America. Right. Like that should, even that, they don't even live here. You right. know what I mean? And they're like, what is happening over there? Well, and I really respect too that she looked around and she mm-hmm. said, well, what I want yes. is to stay here and hang out with my friend Frederick mm-hmm. and do the work that I can do here. But 
this is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. I can't just, it's not about what I want. So I guess the best thing for the thing that I care about, Mr. Garrison, As a... is to leave. <laughs> Mr. Garrison. Uh-huh. Exactly. She saw, She put the goal ahead of herself. Yeah. And I don't think he did. Right. Again, I don't have any evidence. Speculation station, William Lord Garrison was like, I need to win. Yeah. <laughs> but it sure looks Screw like that. Screw Mr. Douglas. In this instance, it really does look like that. Yeah. So that's pretty dope of Julia. We like Julia here. Yeah, so far. I mean, yeah. hopefully they weren't having an affair. It would be really weird for her to live in Anna's house that's and be true. sleeping with her husband. That's I would not true. like that. We would have a real problem with that. I have an issue. Sure. But given the fact that there's no evidence towards that affair, uh, Frederick and Anna continued to have their marriage the whole time mm-hmm. they were there, mm-hmm. seemingly happily, mm-hmm. you know, all things considered. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we can assume that there was one. So we like Julia. Yeah, we'll say on this show, Julia's cool. Yeah. (laughs) But less than a year after Julia left, another white woman arrived in Frederick's life and uh, caused a a bit more of an upset. So let's find out more about her right after this commercial break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. 
Last question. I promise you have to go. I have to go. But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to the show. So in 1856, a lady showed up, <laughs> literally knocking on Frederick and Anna's door, and she's like, hey, I want to translate your latest work into German. Oh. And that brings us to Adelie Asing, this episode's second side piece. Knock, knock. And most of our information about Adelie comes from a book called Love Across Color Lines by Maria Diedrich. Adelie Asing was born to middle-class Jewish parents in Germany, Seems like she was kind of a rebel from society. You know, she grew up with like pretty revolutionary ideals. She had a very good education and she liked to flaunt society's mores for women. She worked, for example, she worked as a tutor for a famous actor's kids and she was probably his lover. And she really took a lot of satisfaction from the scandal that arose because of their affair. Oh, okay. And it was is kind of because she felt like I, you know, that shows you how unconventional I am. I'm not like other girls. Uh, you know I what I mean? She's yeah. one of those like uh-huh. <laughs> type of ladies. She's very proud of how different she is and uh-huh. everything. And how, oh, I don't even care about your weird little tight wad <laughs> rules. I'm very special, you know. Mm-hmm. And she became a journalist. Uh, she wrote columns for a German newspaper. But thanks to growing anti-Semitism and restrictions to the press, she fled to America in 1852 and made her home in Hoboken, New Jersey. Oh. That's a culture shock. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, if you hadn't heard, uh, there is also anti-Semitism here. Uh, yeah. So... That she faced that problem right off the bat. Plus, America already had a little disdain for immigrants. Mm -hmm. And her experience as a Jewish-German woman made Adelie very interested in America's racial dynamics. And, and this is this is something that's in, that's fascinating because it's uh, other countries are hearing the promise of the Constitution. Too, right. You know what I mean? Right. It wasn't just people within the country. So yeah. everyone's going, wait a minute. Oh, this don't make sense. Yeah, they get here <laughs> and they're like, but it says in the document right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's everybody's equal, yeah? Yeah. And they're like, get out of here, you German. <laughs> you German. <laughs> so her interest in, in these wackadoo American racial <laughs> politics is what led her to Frederick Douglass's literal door. Mm-hmm. 
She thought that translating his writing would help German readers really understand what it was like in the U.S. Diedrich writes that Audley was, quote, completely taken by Douglas's powerful male presence. Ow! Yeah, she, she got this pretty much right away. As yeah. soon as he opened the door, she's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. The strong man here, yeah? So this might have been love at first sight for her. They started writing to each other frequently as she arranged to translate his second autobiography, My Bondage, My Freedom. And starting in 1857, she spent every summer in the Douglas family home working with him and tutoring his kids for 22 years. Thanks to all the gossip that was spread about Julia Griffiths and their alleged affair, Audley thought, quote, the Douglas marriage had been over long before she entered the scene, according to Diedrich. And she was, quote, unable or perhaps unwilling to see Anna as a fellow human being and a woman. And she wrote disdainfully of Anna's blackness and her illiteracy. And generally, historians do agree that there was some kind of physical relationship going on between Frederick mm-hmm. and uh and oddly, um, yeah. that there was kind of an affair here. Yeah, Diedrich's book is based solely on letters that Audley wrote to her sister. So she admits that it's it's most it's very a one sided story. Right. Um, but she was like, it's more than likely. And then one of Frederick Douglass's biographers also said, yeah, it's more than likely they were having a physical relationship. She's so so okay. So even though. She's in this woman's home, yeah. right? Tutoring her children and and sleeping with her husband. She's got to add insult to injury. She's got to kick her while she's down and start talking shit about her too. Yeah. She's being totally disdainful of Anna Insane while she's ruining disrespect. her life. Yeah. Outrageous. You're in this hospitality being extended to you yeah. every day. Like I picture Anna making her breakfast. That's what's making me mad. Uh-huh. Like I'm like, she's fucking giving her eggs and shit. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> it just would make me furious. And I mean, not to not to absolve Frederick of any guilt here either no, because no. look, dude, like you just escaped an affair scandal. What are like, you doing? You knew how damaging it was when someone made it up. What are you doing now? Doing it. Doing it. Exactly. Oh, and, and of course, it historically makes it more suspicious with Julia. Right, right. Because like, you're oh, like, oh, he well, he did do it with Audley, so why not, Julia? You know Damn what it. I mean? And there's all these people like, Frederick, I was defending you. I was defending you. <laughs> I know you've got a lot step. going on, <laughs> but respect your wife, please. Jeez. Yeah. But that seemed to track for Audley. She's sort of... Had yeah. a lot of contempt for most people. She yeah. felt really just a lot better than most people. It's especially, apparently, the wives of the men that she admired. she wanted to sleep with. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So, oddly, not my favorite person in this right. story. I'll say that. Well, meanwhile, Frederick is dealing with some even bigger drama mm. than what's going on in his house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because in March of 1859, he took a meeting with the radical abolitionist, John Brown to discuss emancipation. Mm. A while later, John Brown stayed at Frederick's house shortly before he led his famous raid on Harper's Ferry, and he even formed some of his plans at while he was staying with Frederick Douglass. Oh, wow. And at some point, he Frederick Douglass admitted to this meeting years later, mm-hmm. years later, but it turned out that he had met with John Brown in like an abandoned stone quarry at night 
or something. Oh, wow. And John Brown was like laying out all his plans to be like, we're going to, me and my secret six over here are going to raid Harper's Ferry Arsenal. Uh-huh. And we're going to arm all the slaves and we're going to incite a rebellion. Oh. You in, bro? Uh-huh. You know, and Frederick Douglass was like, no. <laughs> I am not in. That sounds, he said the plan was suicidal. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it does sound that way. He's like, no, I'm going to nope right out of that proposition. Yeah. And John Brown went on to do what John Brown did. Uh-huh. <laughs> but after the raid went down in October of 1859, Frederick was accused of both supporting John Brown and of not supporting John Brown enough. Ugh, classic. So if you think all the wishy-washiness of today is anything new, it's not. Right. We've been obnoxious forever. Right. Um, he was almost arrested in Virginia for playing a part in the raid, even though, again, he was not there. <laughs> Um, which could have led to his execution. Wow. Um, So he had to flee to Canada for a little while. He actually stayed with Audley in Hoboken for a minute, like while he was hiding from the law, and then he he went on up to Canada. Before then going on to a previously planned lecture tour in Scotland, so he was safe while he was over there. Okay. But tragically, in 1860, only a few days before her 11th birthday, Annie Douglas died, and Frederick canceled the rest of his tour, and he went home, He traveled through Canada to avoid arrest. And after Annie's death, Anna Murray was also often in ill health. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say, I'll say I, I guess it's speculation station a little bit, but I'm thinking about Anna. She's at home all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like she's mm-hmm. she's taking care of the house stuff. She's got her, her kids there. I mean, this girl's 10 years old. Uh, she's barely seeing anyone else. People come through in the Underground Railroad. They come and go just as quickly. Yeah. You know, she's she's got her groups that she's organizing with, but she spends so much time at home. Frederick's coming and going. He's yeah, barely ever there. True. And then there's these people out there talking shit about her and her family. She's got a woman who's sometimes staying at her house talking shit Damn about bitch. her. Totally. Like, I'm saying her kids were probably also like her best friends in a little bit. Of the, uh, in a little way. Yeah, I could see that. Right? Or at very least, the center of her yeah. world. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, definitely would be just really sad. Yeah. Now, also in the year 1860, a Republican candidate named Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I, <laughs> Abe, is that you? <laughs> he won the presidential election. And he was running on the platform that was anti-slavery expansion. So the, the party at the time wasn't really trying to end slavery outright everywhere. They were just going to keep it from being legal in new territories like Missouri. Partly because slavery, like we said, just wasn't really popular at this time. Yeah. I mean, outside of some loud, heavy pockets, you know, predominantly in the South, but surely throughout the whole country, a lot of people were coming around to the idea that like, eh, maybe this isn't so good. But also partly because this was going to give the North larger representation than the Southern states in Congress and the Electoral College. Yeah. The Southern states didn't like that because that was going to impede them from passing all the pro-slavery legislation that they wanted. (laughs) And in fact, of course, they threatened to secede if Republicans won the election. So that's what they did, forming the Confederate states and kicking off our very own civil war in 1861. Now, Frederick spent the early part of the war advocating for allowing black soldiers into the army. Um, He was kind of like, listen, this war is about slavery, so you should allow black people to fight for their freedom. Right. Uh, It only makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) He acted as an advisor to Lincoln throughout the war, advocating for suffrage and civil rights, 
And by 1863, Congress passed a bill allowing black men into the army. And Frederick's own son, Charles, was the first black man to enlist in New York. And his oldest son, Louis, fought at the Battle of Fort Wagner. And Frederick Jr. served as a recruiter. So he's like willing to put his kids up for this. You know what I mean? Right, like He's right. like, I'm not just talking. I mean it. And on January 1st, 1863, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which stated that slaves in the South were free and that ending slavery was the ultimate goal of winning the Civil War. Mm. And it was apparently a very good idea of Frederick's to allow black soldiers into the army um, because it gave the Union Army a huge edge. They had right. a ton more people than the South did. Right. And the South, the Confederate states, were afraid to do it because it would then admit that, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, you're like people Just and you, as capable. you know, you're capable yeah. and so on. So they were afraid to do it. So it really gave the North like quite an edge. Plus you like bond with your fellow soldiers a lot too. So probably a lot of people would come back from the war going like, wait, okay, this what? my buddy has to go back into slavery now? Exactly. They were like, you can't mingle that way. Yeah. Else it changes everything. And they knew that because it's such a tenuous bullshit that it was all yeah. built on. So it's like, we're afraid. And it literally helped them lose. Right. And you also probably get the edge, too, of the fact that you've got not only all these additional bodies on your side, but who have a serious stake in fighting. You know, I I wonder about this sometimes because I think we've talked before about how despite the pro-slavery movement in the South, how many Southerners actually had the wealth to Mm -hmm. own slaves themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, so I imagine there's a lot of like poor kids drafted into the army who don't don't even really understand what they're fighting for, uh, you know, uh, and so they probably don't care as much as you've got people literally fighting for their freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So even so, during the presidential elections in 1864, Frederick Douglass supported a different candidate because he was disappointed that Lincoln didn't support black men's right to vote. But after Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, Frederick was chosen to deliver the keynote speech at the unveiling of the Emancipation Memorial. And without pulling any punches, because you know Frederick don't pull punches. don't do it. He both criticized and praised Lincoln, calling him, quote, the white man's president, and saying that he should have gotten into the cause of emancipation earlier in his life, but that no one, black or white, could deny that he had put his money where his mouth was to eliminate the institution of slavery. He said, quote, Though Mr. Lincoln shared the prejudices of his white fellow countrymen against the Negro, it is hardly necessary to say that in his heart of hearts he loathed and hated slavery. Douglas got a standing ovation for his speech, and Lincoln's widow Mary Todd even gave Frederick Lincoln's favorite walking stick. It's pretty cool that he got that even when he was being so real yeah. about the man himself, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think that's cool. That shows you what a great speechmaker he must have been. I mean, Because for he real. was able to really draw lines, you know, yeah. very carefully. Now, during the war, Audley and Frederick had still been collaborating. They're publishing articles in her German paper and his American one, urging the country to end slavery and uh, integrate the army and all those, all those things that he was advocating for. Mm-hmm. But Audley, in letters to her sister seemed 100% certain that as soon as emancipation was achieved, it would mean that Frederick Douglass was no longer in the public eye, and that would mean that he could leave his wife, Anna, and finally marry her. Wow. She had, like, a whole map drawn in her head (laughs) that I don't think he knew about. 
Um, But she was wrong about that because the fight was not over uh, with the Emancipation Proclamation. Surprise. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't end the problems for black people in America. What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. No, in 1865, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, quote, except as punishment for a crime. Ooh, that, that, that left that little line the door right open there. for a lot Ooh. of fucking problems. Some evil crawled through that loophole. Uh-huh. In 1868, the 14th Amendment guaranteed citizenship to former enslaved people. And in 1870, the 15th Amendment ensured voting rights. So civil rights for black men, at least, were codified into law because women still couldn't vote, you know. Right. Um, But all that progress meant that white supremacists acted very quickly to curb all these rights as much as they could with restrictions, other bullshit, groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and other violent insurgent groups formed very quickly at this time as well. The Reconstruction period was leading swiftly in the direction of reasserting white supremacy and disenfranchising black citizens, mm. which is, of course, what happened about 10 years after the war ended. Yeah. We were voting for nothing but assholes. Yeah. <laughs> so Frederick was like, I still got a lot of work to do here. The fight's not over with just ending slavery. There's clearly a lot more going on. So he conferred with President Ulysses S. Grant about race issues, um, supporting his candidacy and encouraging him to sign the Civil Rights Act of 1871, which is also called the Klan Act mm. and other enforcement acts that basically allowed the president to suspend habeas corpus and send in the troops to suppress all this white violence against black people right. and to ensure their rights to vote and to hold office. And all this protecting of civil rights for black people made Grant pretty unpopular with a lot of shitty white people at the time. But <laughs> Frederick and his fa- his friends and family were and his associates were big fans. Yeah. They wrote about Grant that African-Americans, quote, will ever cherish a grateful remembrance of his name, fame and great services. Well, there you go. Now, in 1872, Frederick became the first black person to be nominated for vice president of the United States. When Victoria Woodhull, in the Equal Rights Party, ran for president and selected him as her running mate without his prior knowledge or consent. <laughs> so he wakes up he one day like, and is like, I'm I'm what? I'm running for vice president? You think he like like stretching, ah, and then he like opened the newspaper and he's like, <laughs> oh, Frederick Douglass is the running, wait, Frederick Douglass? <laughs> I'm Frederick Douglass. <laughs> Smeeze me. Smeeze me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that same year, Frederick and Anna's home in Rochester burned down. And this was likely due to arson, of course. All that white violence we were just talking about. Yeah. Most of their belongings were burned, including the only complete archive of his North Star paper. (laughs) They moved after that to Washington, D.C., and Anna continued to manage their home while Frederick continued to lecture and advocate. Audley started to argue with him about the future and about his children, who she thought were feckless. And they had, I mean, we will say they did rely on his financial support, you know, for years. For a long time. That's true. Well into their adult lives. Mm -hmm. But attention and estrangement sprang up between Frederick and Audley after this. In 1876, Audley went on a European trip, hoping Frederick would just follow along. But he was immersed in his life and his work in the U.S., and he made no move to join her. (laughs) Also, he was married to Anna. Okay. You know? She's like, well, I'll just leave then. He was like, okay, bye. (laughs) I'm going. Are you sure? 
The door is open. You can follow. <laughs> There's an extra seat. I'll leave. I, I'll really do it. I bet she would write him a lot and be like, today I'm in Terry. If yeah. you want to join me, it's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. In 1877, Frederick and Anna moved into Cedar Hill, which is the estate that was the family's final home and where the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site is now located. And Frederick was appointed the recorder of deeds in Washington, D.C., which he accepted because it secured his family's financial future. And then in August of 1882, after a series of strokes, Anna Murray Douglas passed away. Mm. And Frederick was, by all accounts, devastated by this loss. So if anyone's trying to act like he didn't love his wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> he definitely did. Yeah. Um, he made no attempt to contact Audley overseas. <laughs> But he did befriend his new next-door neighbor, a woman named Helen Pitts. Helen was the daughter of Gideon and Jane Pitts. They were abolitionists and suffragists. And after the Civil War, Helen taught at a school in Virginia that educated black men and women. And she caused some local controversy when she accused residents there of abusing her students. And she got them arrested for it. Wow! So Virginians were like, Grumble, grumble. (laughs) How dare a white lady do that, you know? Right. And that's when she moved home with her parents next door to Frederick Douglass, and she started co-editing a women's rights magazine called The Alpha. So Frederick hired Helen to work in the deeds office as his secretary not long after they met. And in 1884, he resigned that office and he married Helen a year and a half after Anna's death. Helen was 20 years younger than him. But nobody cared about that. They cared about the fact that he was black Mm -hmm. and she was white. And that really messed with their brains. They couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. Even though her parents were abolitionists and admired Frederick Douglass, they still did not like her marrying a black man. Mm -hmm. And they stopped speaking to her for the rest of her life. Yes, support Frederick Douglass. Not like that. (laughs) Right. Even Frederick's own children didn't like this marriage. They thought that it was a repudiation of their mother, Anna, which is not uncommon, I think, sometimes when a parent remarries. Sure. I I have to wonder if they knew anything about Audelie. Uh, right. And how they felt about her as a repudiation because Anna yeah. was still alive when he was seen yeah, her. So right? it's like, which is worse? Well, I'm I mean, sure they didn't like Audelie. Surely. Or they just didn't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they were being tutored by her for years. Right. So I'm like, they had, they knew her a little. I mean, yeah. I wonder if they heard any of these rumors. Anyway. But regardless of what anybody else thought, Helen and Frederick went ahead with it anyway. Helen said, quote, love came to me and I was not afraid to marry the man I loved because of his color. And Frederick Douglass commented, quote, this proves I am impartial. My first wife was the color of my mother and the second, the color of my father. But what about Audelie? Uh, Audelie. Well, she is in Europe fighting for a claim to her sister's estate when she heard the news about this little union. And it must be said, this is a bad time for Audelie. She had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, no. So she is already in ill health when she heard that her lover of 26 years was not ever going to marry her and had, in fact, married another white woman 20 years younger than her. And so she responded dramatically. The following August, she went to a Paris park and drank a vial of cyanide and died by suicide. Oh, no. All her letters from Frederick had been burned. 
And she left him the income of her $13,000 estate, which, let's see if I can pull the calculator out again. Uh, that yes. would be $361,598 today. Wow. So not an inconsiderable amount of money. No, that's a lot of money. So she left him this income in her will and stipulated that it should be delivered in semi-annual installments to him for the rest of his life. Wow. Huh. Now, some sources paint this as like a sign of her undying love and devotion to Frederick Douglass. Right. Or perhaps his causes or whatever. Um, Maria Diedrich writes that it was, quote, a more substantial way of haunting him. Oh, yeah, sure. Which, right. I guess just again, it's all based on her book. So, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The character that she has definitely put together of this woman is not flattering. Right. And I kind of buy that, that she's like, I'm just going to make him have to look at my name. Every few months yeah. for the rest of his life, he's going to have to remember me. I wonder if she was not well. I mean, you know, she she, she definitely, like we said before, like was kind of living in a different reality. She, she, had, she had a very different perspective on their relationship than he clearly had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't, obviously we don't know. We can only speculation station about it, but uh, it, it doesn't seem that he maybe let her on he probably didn't even have time to make her think that their relationship was something other than it was mm -hmm. it seems like he was very clear like yeah i'm not going to europe with you or no. anything but no she did struggle with depression yeah and she had had suicidal ideation in her past oh man yeah. before so that's definitely true she was not like stable in that way right. i guess um but yeah i i do question it i'm like i guess a lover of 26 years, it makes it seem like they were together every day, maybe, or something. But again, she's only spent summers at his house. Yeah. I wonder if they even did a lot at his house, because right. Anna was right there. His kids right. were there. I wonder if that made a difference or not. Um, or if it was really sporadic, and it was just like, when you can, we did. But it wasn't like a priority to Frederick Douglass. Right. You know, I don't think it was. she was like a major... Like He's like, oh, i got to make time for Audley today. Right, right. You know? uh, Drew Gilpin Faust, um, in his review of Diedrich's book for the New York Times, wrote, quote, Audley Osting is, in Diedrich's portrait, an interesting but hardly likable figure. An intellectual elitist, she had little time for those she regarded as her inferiors. Mm -hmm. This rendered her contemptuous of many men and almost all other women. Uh. Yet, for all her professed commitments to romantic individualism and female freedom, she ended up the victim of her own dependence on a man and of her longing for the very conventions of marriage that her words and actions had so long scorned. Wow. Which is like a sad note, but she had, Maria Diedrich had also noted that when she was having the affair back in Germany with the famous actor, uh -huh. uh, very similar. She was like, oh, I'm his equal partner. But actually, she was giving him most of her money and oh. everything was about him and what he wanted. So she was still kind of subsuming her whole life in the man. Yeah. And so it was sort of like she really wanted to be this like rebellious figure and she lived her life like she was like above everyone, but mm -hmm. she really wanted some really traditional stuff. And right. It's too bad that she didn't feel like she could do both. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I'm sad for her that she felt like she had to act like a bitch <laughs> in order to be a different type of woman or yeah. a better, quote unquote, better type of woman. I right. It seems like she's one of those people, like a woman who had to put other women down so that yes. she could feel superior mm -hmm. to the idea of what women are. Right. You know, which is no, no, no help. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Frederick Douglass and Helen had a very happy marriage. 
They had similar intellectual interests and they shared a commitment to women's suffrage. She played piano, he played violin, and they both played croquet at their home in Cedar Hill. They took a trip to Europe together, which must have pissed off Adelie from beyond the grave, right? I mean, I just saw her looking at me like, oh, now you want to go. <laughs> Since Frederick had been appointed a U.S. Marshal for D.C. in 1877, he attended presidential gala receptions and she accompanied him. Frederick wrote to a friend that the marriage, quote, brought strong criticism, but there is peace and happiness within. On February 20th, 1895, Frederick Douglass attended a meeting of the National Council of Women, and they brought him out to a platform and gave him a standing ovation, and uh -huh. like everybody knows how great Frederick Douglass is to uh -huh. the cause of, of women's suffrage. But that night, he had a massive heart attack and died at the age of 77. Wow. I just love that on his last night, he got a standing ovation from everybody oh, just for his amazing life and all yeah. the work he did. Like, I just, the timing of that's nice to me. Yeah. We, I would we love could that. could all hope for as much. We could all work it out so I get a standing ovation <laughs> on my last hour. Yeah. Now I'll be worried every time I get a standing ovation. Yeah. And I'll oh, be no. like, oh my God, is this it? <laughs> this is it. Jeez, oh, knock on wood. Fortunately, I don't get many standing ovations. <laughs> hey, I give you a standing ovation every day. What? When I stand up out of bed and I clap and I say, get up. That it's doesn't time to count. Get up. <laughs> that does not count. <laughs> but then you stand up and I cheer sarcastically for you. That still doesn't feel like the same thing. <laughs> it's definitely not the same thing. <laughs> That's what Frederick Douglass got. You getting out of bed know, does yeah. not I guess equal I, I got to do Frederick, Frederick Douglass shit to get Frederick Douglass claps. <laughs> yes. So, yes, Frederick Douglass was held in state in D.C. Thousands of people, of course, attended his funeral. Mm -hmm. They came to see his body laying in state and everything and pay their respects. But they laid him to rest in Rochester, where he had made his home for most of his life, at the Mount Hope Cemetery right next to Anna Murray. Oh. And he had left Cedar Hill to Helen, his wife of the past 11 years, but there weren't enough witnesses to validate that bequest, so they said it did not count. What? And she did not get the home outright. What? And so Helen suggested to the Douglas children that they should set Cedar Hill aside as a memorial to their father and, like, have it managed by a board of trustees sure. and stuff. So it wasn't, like, about her personally gaining from it. She's right. She's like, I won't touch it. You know, it's just for him. Yeah. But the kids who, again, you know, had been relying on... Doug, on Frederick Douglass's income, I guess, a lot, and his name probably, too, uh, for support. They just wanted to sell the estate and divide the money equally amongst wow. them. So get this. Helen borrowed a bunch of money and bought the place herself to pay off the heirs and the other family members. So she had to raise the money to buy what had already been bequeathed to her. Outrageous. But she devoted the rest of her life to planning and establishing the Frederick Douglass Memorial and Historical Association. She got Congress to pass a law incorporating the association and worked to raise money to maintain the estate, lecturing throughout the Northeast for years. But near the end of her life, contributions were falling off. Helen was in poor health, and it looked like her life's work, preserving Frederick's life's work, wasn't going to pan out. But a prominent black reverend named Francis Grimke, the reverend who had married Helen and Frederick, suggested that she sell the property and create college scholarships in her and Frederick's names. And initially she agreed, but she said only if the scholarships were only in Frederick's name and not in hers. 
which I get, which is, you know, as a sign of respect, it's like about preserving yeah. this great man's legacy. I also hate that instinct to write yourself out. Right. She was like, well, don't put me in there. Yeah, you know? that's and I'm like, true. Well, but you did stuff. Yeah. No worries if not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. It was called the No Worries If Not Scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1903, Helen changed her mind. She's pretty much nearing the end of her life at this point. She knew it. And she wrote to Reverend Grimke, begging for his help if the mortgage was not paid off before she died. She wrote, quote, If the colored people think so little of Mr. Douglas and his great services that they cannot raise this small sum, it will stand as an everlasting disgrace and reproach to the race. See to it that you do not allow my plan for Cedar Hill to fail. Oh, uh, well, I mean, all right. I, know, I, I was a like, damn, girl, you get quote. a little it's strong like, worded there. Yeah, trying to. Uh, but, you know, she's desperate. She's about to die. Yeah. She's like, please okay. pay for this. Okay. Come on okay. now. So <laughs> I wonder if he was reading it like, why do you get to decide it's what's just a disgrace like, to my race? You can okay. still be racist when you're trying to fight for Frederick Douglass's legacy, you know? It's so true. <laughs> she, she had a lot to unpack, all right? Yes. We, yes. we, we were just learning about now. <laughs> <laughs> but after Helen died in 1903, she was buried next to Frederick in Mount Hope Cemetery as well. Oh, nice. And the mortgage for Cedar Hill was reduced from $5,500 to $4,000. And the National Association of Colored Women, led by Mary B. Talbert of Buffalo, raised the money to buy Cedar Hill. Amazing. It's now administered by the National Park Service, and they give tours of his home. It houses memorabilia like Lincoln's favorite walking stick. Nice. And informs guests of his contributions to freedom, just as Helen was hoping. Oh, that's awesome. Which I love. Yeah. So, the, oh boy, that whole group just came together, mm -hmm. raised the money, yeah. bought it up. Which is they and they and they were probably like not because of what Helen said, which we right. found a little condescending, All right. but because we wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, that's that's what really struck me reading this story uh, yeah. or learning his story. Um, you know, his daughter Rosetta Sprague, other historians like Lee Fout and Rose O'Keefe, and more. You know, we're saying there really is no Frederick Douglass without Anna Murray, mm -hmm. that she does not get enough credit for the part she played in his legacy. And, yeah. and we talked about that a little bit through the episode that she was, you know, making the space for him to build his career. He couldn't have done it without her. Yeah. Plus, she got him out of slavery also. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Pretty important part of the story. Right, right. Um, I would add that women in general didn't get enough credit for the part they played in Frederick's story because yeah. it wasn't just Anna Right. His mother, first of all, gave him a great sense of pride, a sense of himself, a yeah. sense of being able to teach himself and learn and have the capacity to learn. I think his mom was a really strong shape in his in his mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. think she really was important in his uh, development as a kid. Absolutely. And then, of course, Anna Murray helped him escape. She supported him financially. Women in England raised the money for him to buy his right. freedom and for him to start his paper. Right. They've, you know, start. they basically financed his startup. Yeah. <laughs> Julia Griffiths kept that paper afloat by handling the financials and raising money. Uh-huh. Audley, even though she's a bit problematic, shared <laughs> his words with an entire new audience. Right. She was opening them up in, in whole other countries and translating his work into many different languages, into a whole other language. Yeah. She also housed him when he was on the run from the law. And then Helen worked to preserve his legacy for the rest of generations so we would know anything about him and yeah. all the work that he did. Yeah. 
And black women raised the money to pay for that preservation. So it was just women throughout his life. Yeah. That were like, this guy is getting shit done. Let's help him out. And I think if without those women, I'm not sure he would have gotten as far as he did. Right, right. You know, they really were the wind beneath his wings. Uh, Well, and you can even look at it as not so much as like women supporting Frederick Douglass, but women who wanted to get something done had to find a guy Mm -hmm. to be their face for those things to get done. So it was a way for women to do things that they were trying to accomplish, Mm -hmm. sort of just like, a you know, borrowing Frederick Douglass's persona um, to be able to get things done that they were trying to get done. Yeah. Pretty phenomenal. Well, and even a shitty slave-owning white woman is the reason he learned how to read in the first <laughs> right, place. yeah. So. <laughs> I guess that's true, too. I'm just like, it was just hundreds of women that mm-hmm. that really ensured his legacy. Yeah. And I'm not trying to take away from Frederick Douglass. Oh, yeah. No, not at all. Obviously, we're talking about a very intelligent and brave and cool dude. Right. Who did a lot of great things. But the obscured part is all these ladies that were standing yeah. behind him. It wasn't. It wasn't just... Well, you know, behind every great man is one great woman. Behind him were hundreds of women <laughs> yeah. all working really hard yeah. and doing their little piece. And yeah. that's what they got, you know, to contribute. I mean, we, we, you see so often in history in general that one great person is often many, many great people. Yeah. Um, and then how often in history the women in that circle are not studied, cast yeah. aside or or even like in... um. In Clementine Churchill's case, like didn't feel like she should make a big fuss about what she was doing to help, Mm -hmm. you know. So for years, nobody knew about it because even she wasn't being vocal about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's 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 really amazing kind of what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool. I mean, again, because people now have to come home and (laughs) cook the meal and wash the dishes and make sure the laundry's done. And they're tired and they're like, man, I used to write screenplays. What happened to that? (laughs) I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> you didn't have Anna Murray yeah. <laughs> that allowed you that that space. So anyway, um, I just loved learning more about all these ladies and his this crazy Audley. It's really great, like just now that sexism is over, that oh, we can. I'm so um, glad sexism. That we can over. look at these things in a different way. Yeah, sexism's done. Actually, I don't know if you guys, if you heard, oh, they cool. made the announcement yesterday. Uh, sexism over. I Very feel exciting. Like my times. algorithm should have fed me that one, but I, I missed it. <laughs> no, they didn't want to get you all emotional about it, you know. <laughs> they were like, she'll get all riled up. <laughs> we can't tell her sexism's over or she'll get all emotional about it. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> oh, you never know. It might be that time of the month. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I throw my phone across the room. <laughs> well deserved. Palpable hits. Oh, man. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this story as much as I did. Fascinating, right? I loved learning about Frederick Douglass, amazing man. I loved learning about all these women uh, standing beside him and around him and everywhere around him. Yep. Get making that shit happen. And I hope you did, too. Definitely. Please reach out to us and tell us what you thought. Yeah. Our email is ridicromance at gmail.com. Right. Or you can find us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli. I'm at dianamiteboom. And of course, the show is at Ridic Romance, so follow along. Hey, have you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts yet? Oh. You should totally do that. It's a really good way to give yourself a little emotional boost for the day. You'll feel great about it. 
And we'll be back later this week with more exciting episodes. And we'll catch you then. Can't wait. Love you. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.